Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Confounding variable being how we talk pre-recording versus how we talk when we really get into yeah. it. Yeah, when we get very impassioned for Sam. Get loud. I, I think almost said the name. Up. I almost said the name. I'm coming up. Ooh, here I come. Here is he this comes. It? He's How's cranking his knob on my. My knob folks. is being cranked. That actually sounds Live. really good. Oh, no. sick. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, the good stuff, everyone. Goodies. I think that's the. Good I think that's the episode. Cranking. <clears throat> it, masterful you could say starring jason uh, statham and it only took 75 minutes thank you so much everybody for listening to try love it's a literal roundtable podcast i'm trying to get better with my diction literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the trial and cinema in minneapolis minnesota you can find us on twitter at trial of podcast you can find the tri- the trial on themselves at trial and cinema and at trialon.org almost made it trialon.org for tickets and showings series, other programming, merch, all kinds of cool stuff that you can buy to support the Trilon. My name is Jason Daphnis. I'm just like a wolf, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I can read your lips and all the shit you've been talking. I'm Cody Narvison, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I always want a woman before I kill someone. I'm Harry Mackin, and you can find me on Twitter at PunishTake. That's what he always says. Uh, before we launch into the patented Aaron Grossman summary under exclusive license from Aaron Grossman Enterprises Limited, I should say that this film is screened as part of the Wandering Ronin series at uh, the Trilon, a series on the films of Hideo Gosha, and includes also Three Outlawed Samurai, Bandits vs. Samurai Squadron, and Violent Streets all through the month of August here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Go to Trilon.org if you're listening to this contemporaneously, and if you're not, Check them out wherever you can watch them. Uh, but it is actually time for us to get into the pegs. Yes, indeed, folks. Samurai Wolf is a 1966 Jidai Geki film. Uh, samurai action period drama, of course, directed by Hideo Gosha uh, and starring Isao. Sorry, I'm going to screw this up just like Aaron does. It's an homage to him. Isao Natsuyagi, uh, Ryohei Uchida, and Junko Miyazuno, among others. It follows the wandering Ronin Kiba, known as the Furious Wolf, as he stumbles across a town brewing with internal conflict, mainly centered on the town's shipping checkpoint and its proprietor, the blind widow Chise. Uh, while local clans, uh, vi- clan powers, I need to, I just wrote this a few minutes ago, so my apologies, I haven't typed, type, uh, like, typo checked it. Uh, uh, while local clans vow- vie for control over the lucrative enterprise, Chisei's post is given the task of transporting 30,000 pieces of gold for the regional shogun across a bandit-infested highway. Kiba is enlisted to protect the gold, aid Chisei, and fend off the skilled mercenary samurai Sanai, whose motives for entering the conflict go beyond making a quick payday. Uh, Samurai Wolf was one of Hideo Gosha's first films, his fourth, I think, as listed on Letterboxd, and uh, after the arguably better-known Three Outlaw Samurai, also playing at the trial on later this month, and it spawned a sequel, uh, aptly titled Samurai Wolf 2 helping propel Gosha's career almost another 30 years uh, and has spawned a critical reputation as a cult favorite of 1960s Jidai films as established by Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo, uh, Kihachi Okamoto's Sword of Doom, and others. Uh, both of those movies actually we've covered on this very podcast. And one last note. Hell yeah. Samurai, yeah, right? Uh, go back and listen to those. Uh, one last note is that Samurai Wolf was shown at the trial and with support from the, excuse me, Japan America Society of Minnesota. You can find links to their work in the show notes. Um, 
yeah, I that's the that's the the the, the recap of what actually happens in the movie. Um, we I guess it's maybe the least surprising thing imaginable that we are slowly becoming the podcast authorities on like samurai movies, yeah. given the Trilon's demographics and our demographics and everything. Given but it is are. pretty cool to think about like, wow, we're doing like pretty much all of the, the great samurai movies. Uh, all the hits, all the hits. Take a bow, everybody. Um, I, that brings me to like the question I had, and there's a lot to talk about as far as like specific what, what's in the movie and stuff. I want to know from both of you, we'll start with Cody. Um, how does this differ? Because we've covered so many uh, Jidekeki films of already, of course, we've got Yojimbo, Sanjiro, uh, sort of Doom, I'm sure a couple others that I'm forgetting, even in 238 episodes, that tends to happen. But how does this differ in your mind? What did you notice? How did you feel differently about this one versus some of the other Jidekeki films that we've watched and recovered on the podcast before? No, uh, great, Lena. I think that's like an excellent place to start with this. And like maybe the obvious one, um, because when you watch this, um, hopefully you've watched this if you're listening to this. Only a few hundred people, at least in like the letterbox community, have watched this movie. So that um, was nuts to be like 117 people have reviewed this and it's playing at the trial on. We're fucking back, baby. Yeah, not since the Kunio Tanaka movies have we covered something that nobody's <laughs> fucking watched. Yeah. Right. Uh, no Wikipedia entry. Jason uh, summoned that summary through like doves carrying like written parchment, um, <laughs> just like fragments that have been dug up over the years, letters and bottles, etc. Um, but registering that Yojimbo energy really early, I think made it easier as a, as a viewer, as the um, de facto, um, you know, a wandering Ronin, a favoring podcast uh, to just like use that as a, as a lens uh, to see like, you know, there's a lot of inspiration that's been derived from um, not just like Yojimbo, but stuff like seven samurai as well. And so like, as having that question be sort of not just the subtext, but the text of like, okay, what can we do differently here? Um, and there's, there's a lot of fun stuff going on. Uh, the, the, the conflict, the warring factions plays a little bit differently. I think technically speaking, there's a lot of really fascinating stuff going on, um, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get into the, the decisions of, uh, you know, when to use slow-mo and when to shut out sound, altogether um and there's uh, some like narrative whiplash that goes on some like melodramatic 11th hour turns um just like plot beats and also like 11th hour antagonists sprouting up out of the woodwork out of nowhere so there's there's a lot that feels more like um i don't slapdash i have no idea if that's the right situation to use that phrase but just like it's not a bad word for it yeah yeah just like things that uh, kind of um like jason's summary which again had to be like brought up you know very quickly from like scraps of old parchment that kind of feels like this story uh as well which is not necessarily to its detriment i kind of like the the ragged um like shoestring nature of of this movie while again at the forefront there's a lot of really fascinating things that um that like our eyes are feasting upon like the the fight scenes are not just like slow uh like slow-mo and and inventive but they're also like really brutal there's a lot of great sword play going on um and i i think it being able to cut right to the bone instead of um, something like yojimbo which i really think maybe with the benefit of hindsight builds up the mythos of the um 
like the the nature of Ronin and like uh, duality of man and like what does it mean that these factions are warring with each other? It's like no, nah, there's there's a charismatic Ronin who's eating rice through the opening credits of this movie and like Bro, he Ronin or Ronin fuck out of that rice. <laughs> he does Ronin are and that was the, that was one of my other uh, like semi big things. Are just like Ronin are like charismatic and cool. Like they're meant to be like historically they're very dishonorable, but this guy is like he's a homie. He rules. <laughs> he's so like, much fun. They're like the old only thing more dishonorable than actual samurai it's it's just like people have sort of given up the the auspices of that they were even anything more than hired uh and that thugs, makes them fucking like, cooler nah, we're man just like literally bandits <laughs> <laughs> right yeah so i don't know that that was a bunch of random shit that that was hitting me harry did i don't did it hit you kind of the same way or, or did i did i miss anything no, with the yeah. multitude of things we could be covering here i really like where you went with that especially um comparing this to a pun intended i suppose like shaggy dog yojimbo right where it's just like it's like a a a leaner meaner uh faster almost more b-movie version of yojimbo um really like it for that i'm i was biased because i'm gaga for um gosha i must say um i don't know if we're actually going to cover three outlaw samurai because uh it's playing the same time as millennium mambo which is low-key the hardest like pick for us i think of the year so far it's such a good movie if we don't end up covering it i'm gone that week regardless spoilers but man that film fucking yeah three outlaw samurai is a fucking masterpiece um that's like i i think that it's his uh seven samurai if um this is his yojimbo uh in in both ways um i was watching this with kelly and she mentioned that um that like you could she could see this so easily transliterated to a western which like there are obvious comparisons but like it really does underscore the fact that like they're the same genre of movies like every western is a samurai movie and every samurai movie is a western um and similar to those uh I, I find a lot of meaning in I feel like I the more samurai movies I watch, the more I enjoy them. And I think that this one really benefits from that because I think on first blush it's a little slight for me um it's not even an hour and a half long um a lot of that is uh slow-mo a lot of that is sort of plot construction despite the fact that the plot is not exactly like meticulous necessarily um but i think that this movie really lives and dies again i pun intended i guess on like the contributions it's making to the larger conversation about samurai um and i really love comparing it to yojimbo i especially really love comparing kiba uh to the the yojimbo sanjuro right um i i love that he is like this younger more feral again i'm making all kinds of puns uh samurai he he's very childlike in this movie um in a way that i find very subversive um in that like samurai are supposed to be sort of stoic and badass and uh like defined entirely by abstract by honor whereas he is like Mm -hmm. a consummate materialist where it's just like all he wants to do is fucking eat rice and like like make his way in this world right and like there's almost uh there's a really and this is an old chestnut from trial of lore that i'm gonna bust out again but it's like uh this is kind of a buddhist movie in that it's like it's very cynical about human desires and not only that that desires are sort of the root cause of suffering but that they're, they're the cause of like corruption and that in some ways um like desire is 
leads to corruption almost unavoidably. And there's a really interesting and sad conclusion that this movie comes to, which again is like such a hallmark of the great uh, samurai Western is the sad ending where the samurai must walk off alone into the sunset, um, leaving behind the woman who loves him and whom he has come to love. Um, I really like what this movie ends up doing with that. And it, it creates this, I think deceptively deep and sort of like very um, anti-capitalist and like pessimistic view on um uh on the way humanity works that i was kind of surprised to see in 66 even though i think it's very part and parcel with samurai movies and sort of like i think that like if if westerns were always sort of a deconstruction of the myths of the frontier and of the old west then i think samurai movies have always sort of been revisionist deconstructions of like feudal Japan or the systems of Bushido and the ideas of honor and of sort of like caste systems that are defined by nature as opposed to society. Um, and I think that this movie makes a really interesting point and it does it while creating a rare character that is sort of unambiguously, um, heroic. Like <laughs> I really enjoy rooting for Kiba, uh, in this movie. And I, I think that that is itself sort of refreshing and, and strange for a samurai movie because, like, even in Yojimbo, like, Sanjuro is kind of defined by the fact that, like, hey, like, I understand what samurai are better than you because I'm a duplicitous sort of, like, manipulator, and that's my superpower, <laughs> right? Whereas Kiba is like, well, I'm, like, just a silly kid uh, who doesn't really know what the fuck is going on uh, and and is sort of, like, he kind of reminded me of, like, like, Yakuza characters in that like his naivete is his strength right uh and I I really enjoyed that about this movie so I I think it's it's sort of deceptively got a lot going on maybe just in conversation with other samurai movies but in a way that I really mm -hmm. appreciated um and what what did you think Jason and does that sort of like register with what you have been thinking about or what yeah were you, were yeah for sure like I was saying, most of what I was – it's hard not to, like, see this as a comparison type when you've already seen Yojimbo, Sanjuro, and a lot of, like, other better known. Um, but I think that the differences that I noticed were, were like, positives. So I'm not going to say better than, you know, the alternative, but just another path to the, to a similar end, I think. Um, they're, like – obviously, it's far more stylized than something like Yojimbo than, like, the classic Jiregeki films everybody kind of already knows as touchstones. Um, I think that, like – really helps it define itself visually. Uh, like Cody was saying, sometimes uh, during a lot of the action scenes, I was trying to decide if there was like discipline to when they decided to do this, to when Gosha, et cetera, decided to like cut out audio during action scenes and slow down the action like crazy and only have not like just a diegetic sound, but just the diegetic sound of like conflict, of blades clashing against blades, of scissors going through throats, of blades slashing chests and stuff. Like specifically the violent sounds are the ones that come through in the most impactful action scenes. I'm thinking of the one where like after he has spent some time with uh forgetting the character's name but one of the uh, prostitutes in the local town um then he's attacked by a couple of bandits and the whole thing just cuts a complete silence not even white noise uh and he well he uses his fucking shaving shears to kill so, like three dudes it's so fucking <laughs> and he pulls them out of a guy's throat and throws them at another it does rock like honestly that's what i mean is like these are choices you would not see in uh for example in a, a kurosawa film but that really fucking work here we're using the same a lot of the same pieces but we're sort of like shaping them differently and we're putting them in different orders um harry mentioned how kind of, how it's kind of slight on the timeline it's about 75 minutes 
Uh, it like that, of course, sickos. Haha. Yes, I really love that. That like it did use that time for to the best benefit of the movie. Like we spend so little time building characters and we just see them acting as they are. You say uh, Kiba is unambiguously like heroic. He has like one scene. It, it's almost immediately after um, the scene where he has just finished, you know, spending time with a prostitute and he's like trimming your nails and being a child. Uh, and then he's attacked and then he goes to the bathhouse. So cute, uh, by the way. So it, adorable. Uh, when he's really, trimming really, her toenails. Really, yeah, a couple goals. But he uh, he then I think in, almost immediately he's back at Chise's place, I think. And he's taking a bath and she comes in. She is a blind woman. She cannot see him. And he is terrified of the fact that she's there. He's he like he, for a man who probably just had sex. He has no idea what sex she's going to hear that I'm naked. It's it's very funny. And like she offers herself unto him for payment uh, in, in help, like aiding uh, the, the, the coming hordes you know, against the coming hordes and stuff. Uh, and he like is terrified of the prospect like no i'm not like that kind of a person so it's a little bit more unambiguously heroic like you say uh sanai the uh mercenary other ronin uh like the evil version the, the shadowy reflection type give yourself five years and you'll turn into me type of guy is unambiguously a villain in two different like versions of his story he's still just a villain for the same reasons uh but like the the sort of I'm not going to say that something like a Kurosawa film, something like Jimbo isn't focused. It's just trying to do a lot more with its characters, something a lot richer. And I think this movie said that's important, but you already know those building pieces because you've seen Yojimbo six years ago. You've seen Sanjiro three, five years ago. You don't need those pieces to know like the kind of character we're building here. We're just going to have a fun spin on him. He's going to have like this really indeed, like deeply poetic type of character where he has, uh, he's also, he's a child clearly like he's just, like you imagine that he makes jokes about poop humor most of the time. But I mean, then also he, like he clearly like like the shaving is such a giant motif. I was, that, right? I was like just he about keeps to say, trying to shear his beard off and exactly. it keeps going in. That's like the 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 that is the part that I latched onto as like the depth of the character there is just through slight uh you know si signposts at it rather than making it really the focus. He's introduced we can get more deeply into like the semiotics of all this later but like he's introduced um as sort of the scruffy ruffian guy he chi uh, say feels his face and says you don't shave uh you're you know pretty pretty grisly for a ronin uh and he says and yet i shave and he starts trimming his his beard later she tries to give him back his shears uh, as he's going on this like almost certain suicide mission and he gives them back to her he says no keep he doesn't say anything but like he motions no keep them and that's like that, that's kind of pretty meaningful in the character that they've built, but they just don't take time to do that. That's a positive, I think. My take is that it's positive that they don't spend time doing that because I've already seen movies where they take time doing that and I don't need the rework, I guess. It is right to the bone. It's lean mean. We've already called it. Uh, it's B-movie and it's like sort of glorification and coolness of the violence. And yet it really is really fucking cool sometimes. I found so much to really like about this. And it's the rare case for me in which I've seen movies that are objectively better. And yet this does not uh, uh, suffer from comparison to those movies. It's just a really weird right. feeling that I'm, I'm overjoyed with. I it's suppose. like uh, if if Yo Yojimbo or Seven Samurai is like Miyazaki's um Princess Mononoke, then this is like Samurai Champlo or something. Okay, yeah, yeah, a fun comparison. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, a lot of fun ref being dropped. Uh, appropriately so. Those are all great works. I think this is probably a great work too, and it is one that um to i guess our point of characterizing this uh you know the the titular samurai wolf is ostensibly a, a a child he's he is a fun spin like you said jason a fun spin on this whole like archetypal character and this to this i think movies 
great credit. It more or less assumes that you have seen a movie like this before uh, in the way that it doesn't completely like it, it deconstructs it enough to like this type of story enough to put that fun spin on it. But at the same time, there is the element and I think we've um, like gestured at it already, but this whole you know, the, the dishonorable, uh, castaway sort of, um, former samurai who needs to make his livelihood with like essentially his body, um, whether that's through like, um, phys- physical labor, uh, he's gotta, you know, work his way and <laughs> fuck his way through life. And that is what this guy is, is content to do and eat rice his way through life as well. That's also a very fun activity. We see him doing a lot, especially at the beginning, but like those sorts of rice um, and fucking dude, those are the two essentials. Right, yeah, rice and fucking, and um, Jason had a fun uh, spin on that as well. That I'm just gonna say on Mike to make a canon. Uh, rice, blood, and cummies. Uh, that's a T-shirt that it's, is coming soon to the trailer shop. Essential elements of the Ronin experience. Thank you. Yeah, no, no, of course. And so, like, yeah, we have those. We have this, um, and he has to um, the the t- again the titular wolf. He has to come upon opportunities to exact, you know, cosmic justice, and so, like the the fact that there are those. Um, not like mythically built up, but just that they are rich because, oh, this is a hired hand that I need to, like, this is clearly the person that I'm going to need to 1v1. But he also wronged somebody in this community of like five people. And that's, you know, it's narratively important and it's cosmically and, and justicely important. So like you, you still have those layers and it is important to have those because if you don't have some semblance of like tethering to uh, you know the 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 classic Ronin story. Then this it, this becomes less important because it's not like a spin on that anymore. Not to say that it would be bad to become its own thing, but I I like this as a very conscious, important step in the evolution and the reexamination of these stories that are already reexamining a whole bunch of different aspects of um, Japanese history. So I don't know. Wanted to put a, a point on that specifically. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like this idea that we've been sort of talking about that this is basically like Peter Pan, the samurai movie, right? It's like, here's this guy. <clears throat> he, he, Kiba, he has this sort of like very childish uh, persona that he inhibit or he um, inhabits. He's the samurai wolf because he shows his fangs uh, and he's he's called samurai because he shows his fangs he's called wolf because he's just like a wolf and it's like yeah okay bud <laughs> rules uh, yeah like it, it opens made that with up him on the spot in a restaurant eating rice and then telling the the uh person at the restaurant that he can't afford to pay for it so he's just gonna work until he's paid his way that's the life he wants right like he's clearly the a, ideal, yeah. a rioni a wandering samurai um mm-hmm. who uh does not have money does not want money and is just sort of making his way from place to place and he ends up sort of not unlike Sanjuro, right? Sort of like as a um, character archetype, getting enmeshed in the political struggles of what's going on around him. In this case, um, he is very easily manipulated, right? By a lot of different parties, including most subversively in this Chise, right? Who is sort of like, she is herself a subversion in that she is this blind former noblewoman who is trying to save basically a post office. It's called a relay, but it's it's about messaging, sending messages to the Shogun back and forth from this one villain who's trying to take it over for his own greed. Um but it, right, it turns out that even her desire is corruptive because she was a noblewoman. She her life was saved by the post office's phone, former owner, but 
in order to maintain it, in order to keep it, she becomes duplicitous, right? She tricks Kiba and her employees into a suicide mission while she spirits away the gold that she was supposed to transfer. Kiba is, is very disillusioned by this, by being betrayed by this person whom maybe believably or not said that she loved him and that obviously he had fallen in love with as well. But the, the point is that like, Kiba is this is this child character who is trying to avoid coming of age. And in this movie, I think sympathetically to him um, shows coming of age and this sort of like corruption via desire, whether that's the desire to for revenge in the case of the um, the one prostitute, uh, whether it's um, the desire for status and wealth. Um, as with the uh, Sinai, uh, Chisei's surprise husband, the the enemy samurai, the shogun, right? All of these sort of different desires, desire for wealth, desire for status, desire for justice or revenge or money, like really anything. They're sort of conflated with this thing that is going to corrupt your sense of purity about who you are and who you have to be. Because when you want things, you have to do things to get them. And when you do things to get them, those things... Uh, allow you to sell yourself, right? There's the kind of an unfortunate conflation where, I mean, it's it's interesting, and this is tangential, but it's sort of all, all work is sex work, right? Is this kind of movies like line, like you, you mentioned, Cody, about like selling your body and it's like literally and metaphorically true, right? Like you're either killing people or you're sleeping with people and like there's not a huge difference here except that one is more valued than the other. Um, but there is this sort of like cynical sense that like if the samurai wolf wants to settle down, if he wants to want things, if he wants to want love or he wants to want like he wants a home, he is going to have to compromise this sense of sort of above it all purity that he has. And at the end, he chooses not to. Right. He 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 chooses to remain Peter Pan. He takes his shears back, the symbol of his sort of like uh, opposition to coming of age back from uh, Chisei, and walks off into the sunset with them to have more adventures as the samurai wolf, right? As opposed to staying with Chisei and trying to make a go of it and, like, becoming a, a husband or a lover or maybe even a father or something like that. Yeah, there's that. Uh, I, I really like how you called it, like, a, co a corruptive power of desire because I think that's a great place to start talking about Sanai. Um, spoiler alert, but Sanai re turns out to be the husband of Chisei, who we um, uh, previously were told had been killed previously, um, and previous to the events of the movie anyway. Right. Uh, and like you mentioned, he's like the, the obvious foil to Kiba. He yes. becomes kind of the ultimate antagonist. He's, he's hired by the Shogun. He's the guy who says, like you said, like, give yourself five years and you'll be just like me. You'll be like, mm -hmm. like doing bad things for money because rich people pay you to do that. And that's what your skill set is. Right. He is introduced as a like as I mentioned earlier. There's slight character work. Uh, he's introduced as kind of another wandering Ronin with a slightly less, uh, slightly more ignominious in intro. Um, he's just sort of like there to take and to be paid. He wants five dollars a head, but if it's somebody who's a worthy opponent, fifty uh, five. I say pieces of gold. Um, and he, you know, like he, he wants a woman before uh, every kill, uh, like just the, the sort of scuzzy version of what you've been introduced to um, uh, keep up being of sort of an innocent rapscallion. Um, he can't pay for anything, but he has other ways of making it fair sort of deal. And in uh, also notably clean shaven and, and looking a lot more like a traditional samurai, right? Yes. Like he, he's got better clothing. He's got a better haircut. He is 
conventionally handsome, exactly. all of that. He rice really blood is, and cummies for sure. He's got rice blood and cummies, but he's got, but he wants them instead of just like kind of getting right. where he can have them. He wants them. That's, that's a difference. He sort of is like, if this movie had a Tatsuya Nakadai character, I believe it would be uh, this guy. 100%. Because, dude. because he's like, you know, he's got the sort of villainous streak. Uh, there's not, I think that it's more simple than they're trying to make him relatable, but they're trying to show you how somebody like Kiba could turn into somebody like Senai, who's and it's uh, basically wanting more, right? Like right, wanting exactly. money, wanting status, wants, desires. And I just like that it took the time out of this movie that spends no extra time doing much of anything. It builds a really convoluted plot. I'm forgetting details myself of like, <clears throat> excuse me, double and triple crossing. It's very B-movie plotty. Um, still ends up, I think, really fun and satisfying. Sets up some great action scenes and a lot of really fun, uh, like often comedic moments. Um, but like the pieces that it puts in front of you, there are uh, you're introduced to Kiba as sort of like the rapscallion good guy. You know this guy. He's the Yojimbo, period. We're moving on. Uh, later when Senai is introduced, he is shown to be um, like that. You, you assume, I guess, from having heard about from Chise about her husband, that he was a good man, that, you know, her life is harder without him, that they really loved each other, that kind of thing. But you have no indication that it's going to turn out to be like a plot element again later, except in that Chise finds herself drawn to Kiba because she reminds or excuse me, he reminds her of him. He's um, like turn- the original. He's like the original Sinai, right? Like which before Sinai became who he is. There's, there's a little moment uh, later on. When um, Sanai, uh, aka Shinjiro, previously Shinjiro, uh, at before he went went rogue, became a bad boy, Ronin. Um, when Sanai enters the room as Chise has been tied up uh, by one of the roving gangs who just wants the thirty thousand and the post office, um, where he comes in and she, having the best sense of smell in this part of Japan, thinks that it's still Kiba when Sanai walks in the room. She calls him. She says, "Mr. Wolf." And she doesn't realize yet that it's well. She it. she bathed she bathed Kiba man, so she she smells her work, and that's so fucking good. Is that she thinks that this man who is an objectively like evil, badified version of her ex husband of her husband uh, is like she ha- he has the same scent as, and it's just like sort of blurring the lines more than like a shadowy reflection of you. Give it five years, kind of thing, which is what the text actually says, which is what the script tells you. I think there's like a lot more equivocating going on there, as Harry's saying, like a, a sort of a fine blurry line between these two characters, between Kiba and Sanai. Uh, he was he was a good man. He became Sanai. He's a resentful, hateful man with a similar set of skills to Kiba. Um, but when he was denied, specifically, I think where this movie. I don't know if it's trying for this, but it sort of like ends up by maybe by accident being sort of like a, a, a reflection of uh, on on like the sort of hatred of women, the masculine toxic masculinity thing. Obviously, like he's a bad guy because he does these things, but specifically the source of his having broken bad sort of deal with Sunrise, I mean, is that he uh, like resents his uh, wife for the fact that she that he was rejected from her family there he sort of says in one of his lore drops that he um had a sort of a uh that is that her family didn't respect him that her that his father-in-law said no and they called off the marriage and he uh sort of staged his death or or maybe he was supposed to be killed and wasn't um Sanai blames uh Chise for that explicitly uh and sort of like in taking her back toward the end is like sort of reclaiming that as property. Not like I want to be the person I was again. It's, I want to drag you Chise, this person who's been hurt by trauma and who's changed and who's found herself like pulled toward another person. I want to drag you back into my life rather than reintegrate with yours. I, I, that's a whole lot of thoughts around that character specifically, I think, but I think there's like, there's something under the surface of that. uh, And it's like interactions, it's friction with Kiba's character, I think is 
like really, really fascinating. This, the other movies have, haven't seen do that. Yeah, and it gets to a place where it it demonstrates really aptly what the nature of their true desires are, right? Because it's it's like you said, it's like he doesn't love Chise. He, he she is symbolic to him of who he was and who he could come to be again and, and who he's mm-hmm. always wanted to be. And so he sort of like literally objectifies her in the sense that she becomes this object of his success and of his um, identity. Whereas she is doing the same thing to him because it turns out that she's in love with Kiba now, right? She says, no, I don't want to go with you, Sinai. I'm not in love with Sinai. I'm, I'm in love with who Sinai used to be. Who is Kiba now? And meanwhile, Kiba is like, yeah, but like, his love for you and your love for him made him who he is now. Mm -hmm. And so like the unspoken ending there, which like your mileage may vary. It's a little bit misogynistic. It's a, it's a little bit sort of like, Oh, like, like women are a corrupting power because men want them. And that's kind of the women's fault, which is like, Oh, that's not really good feminism. Um, but, uh, that's, that's sort of Barbie feminism actually. Hey, Mm. uh, but, um, Slippery slope counselor. <laughs> uh, I'm just saying. Um, but uh, regardless, like there, there is this idea that like all of these people, their their desires are sort of like these these existential desires for what used to be for getting back some piece of themselves, and that is what leads them down these roads to temptation. Right? Is that like this? This was not a pure thing. This was something that was built on. Um, the, the desire for something else, desire for change, desire for um, status, um, desire for nostalgia, almost or like mm-hmm. like to a return. And um, I I agree. I really like how these characters come to embody those things. And I think it's really fascinating how Kiba like steps outside of it in in this sort of very knowing way at the end. Me too. Uh, both of you said a, a few things that I, I wanted to they made me think of some things I wrote down. Some might call them noties. Um, <gasps> your, your mileage may vary with that. Um, but a couple kind of quick, quickish hits. Um, yeah, the, the Tatsuya Nakadai shout out. It was, that came up uh, partway through the movie. I had to write it down or just, and, and it's the toughest point of this whole Yojimbo comparison is that somebody, you could walk up to me on the street. Um, hopefully I know if a stranger walks up to me, I might have a different reaction to this, but that stranger might say Tashiro Mifune and Tatsuya Nakadai are the two greatest actors who ever lived. And I would like, I wouldn't blank. I'd just say, yeah, yeah I'd just say, I'll, I'll buy that. Like it's such, it's an impossible comparison. They're both in Yojimbo. They're embodying those, uh, those roles immaculately. They're great in anything they're in and it's not to just you know pit you know a group of strong women against each other but that's it's it's a fool's errand in comparison but i thought they were i thought these actors uh were holding their own weight i say not uh excuse me and rohei uchida um like they're 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 not mifune and uh uh Tatsuya Nakadai, but you know what they're they're doing they're doing their best and it was um counting out uh, something else that that popped up in the chat i did think it was it, it was a fun i don't know if there's anything more to this than just like a fun comparison but the fact that tishiro mefune was the the stoic uh ronin and uh Nakadai was the the crazed wild-eyed more childlike because he was a child who like almost literally found a new toy when he's toting this gun around. Um, and so him, him running around that, that image of him, just like whenever he runs around that village is just embedded in my brain from that movie. For some reason, it's the image I take where he's just like gun in the air, Oh, what yeah. can I point this gun at next? Um, and that's uh, he's obviously got, like such a schoolboy haircut in that movie too. Oh, yeah. It's so perfect, man. 
Yeah. And, and that, um, you could, I, I guess, to, I don't know, they more or less, the, more nuanced to say it than just like they flip flop, but the, those roles are, you know, more flip. The off, the off brand Mifune is, is the, the more impish childlike one in this one versus the, um, the, the incoming force, the foil, the, the more seasoned, uh, Ronin, uh, the, you know, wandering samurai who's been hardened by the world, who's been, you know, dragged down by the love of a, a pretty good woman from, from what we can tell. <laughs> um, and that was, I, I don't know, the discussion about Chise, it's, it's, it's certainly important. The one, the final note that I was left on with this movie is the fact that it, obviously they have to play it somewhat textually in that, you know, the Ronin, he goes off, you know, he, he leaves the town that he, just he caused so much destruction was the source of like so so much good but also so many problems and he's like well this is i'm i i can't take you with me i have to go now and i just thought like yeah dude but she's she's blind and everybody she's ever known was murdered today maybe she can like go with you <laughs> maybe that would be an okay thing to do but all that is just i guess you know to I don't know put a finer point and you two have already contextualized that I, I I think pretty well but just the fact that it is sort of a means to end with um with Chise's character and not that I've seen every like yo yo Jimbo inspired movie that yo there Jimbo is like, but yeah, yeah yeah of just like there are women like women characters as uh as you know like not manic pixie dream girl but just like means to an end they they are tools for them to. I, I don't know to, to, for them, they'll, they'll blame them. They'll cause more destruction and then they'll leave. And I guess whether or not the intentionality is there from the movie's perspective of like, we know what we're doing by commenting on this versus we are just putting this here because that's what happens in, in movies about Ronan. Like this is just what happens and we're not going to ex- examine that further. I, I don't know. I'm torn on kind of where this movie is at with that, but I think it is at least a good representation of that, like that discussion um, that um, kind of shows it in both positive and negative light. I don't, I don't know if that hits anything you were going to no, talk about, Harry. That's exactly where I'm going. And in fact, I'm really glad you, cool. you just said that because um, again, I I'm a hundred percent with you in that. Like I'm not really willing to give this movie credit for intentionality. And also like, in a broader critical sense, I don't think intentionality really matters, but I do think it's interesting that like, I think that Kiva's choice at the end of this movie is like, even if it's not necessarily meant to be by the movie, like it's good to read it as ambiguous and maybe even like not ideal. Right. Because it's like, Hey, like running away from coming of age is not a good thing. Like you shouldn't be like, it's like, uh, this is a weird comparison, but it's like, it's like the people who are like, they're like, why doesn't, Bruce Wayne just donate his billions to like making the world a better place. And it's like, well, yeah, but like, he doesn't want to, he wants to be Batman because being Batman fucking rocks. And it's like, that's Kiba, right? It's like, why doesn't Kiba like settle down with this blind woman who he loves and like try to make a life out of this. Cause I could be the furious wolf. Pew yeah, pew. Because it he fucking goes, rocks to, to like <laughs> run around and like pay his way and, and fucking like play with mm-hmm. his sword. Right. It's like, and like, I think that there is legitimately something there. And I think that like that kind of saves the movie a little bit from like my feminist critiques um, in that. Like also, I think that it's really cool that it keeps showing like who suffers from these people who are sort of like, who are avoiding their responsibilities or avoiding sort of settling down, so to speak. Right. Like I think that the other most sympathetic character besides Kiba is probably the, the prostitute at the brothel who sleeps with Kiba for the first time, because like the only desire quote unquote she ever has is to kill Sinai because fucking Sinai killed her entire family and everybody she ever knew. 
And it, it's like, that's not, that's, I'm sympathetic to that fucking desire. Like, mm-hmm. she should desire that. And, like, it is what gets her killed in the end, right? Because she needs to confront this guy, she needs to attack him, and then her boss gets her in the end. Um, but I, I do really like this idea that, like, there are the, like when you when you run away from things like this, you are sort of fundamentally like whether or not you want to be, uh, you you are reinforcing like structural inequalities, right? It's like the mm. the people who suffer are going to keep suffering, and you're going to get to keep being the samurai wolf, right? Like all of the women in this movie end up in terrible places. Like two of the three end up dead, uh, and the the final one is is blind, like you said, Cody, with everybody she's ever known dead at the hands of either her uh, ex-husband or her new lover, right? Like, like there's nobody left otherwise. Um, and I, th- I think that, like, I, I really like reading a little bit of ambiguity into Kiba's final decision to be like, well, that's one more adventure in the books. Like, I leveled up. There's my XP, like, on to the next town. And meanwhile, she's like, yeah, but, like, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there is there is something interesting happening there. And, and that in itself is kind of a cool critique of, like, the idea of samurai right and like ultimately it's it's like everybody in this in this movie has an idea about themselves that they desire to preserve above all else right and like it gets everybody except for kiba killed but kiba's not immune to it right at the end like we it's revealed that kiba more than anything else wants to keep being the samurai wolf that's the image of himself existentially that he's drawn to and that allows him to also hurt people he loves and also reject people he loves just like um the rest of the people in this movie did to their own sort of like ends it's just that his version of the hell that he ends up in or the heaven uh depending on your perspective um is that he's gonna go on being the samurai wolf and hey there's a sequel so (laughs) it seems like he was (laughs) successful uh so congratulations to kiba and sorry to everybody that kiba's ever loved yeah, it's kind of fun to envision now that you say that kind of fun to envision this as um, in a way like if you can stretch your mind into like sort of commentary or critique on the genre of somebody who just repeats these adventures on like a Yojimbo like where it's sort of his choice. We've already discussed like his choice at the end to leave and to not be with Jisei could be read in one of two ways, like the sort of a heartless self-serving act or uh, he recognizes that uh, sort of that, that the, the inherent pull of that desire is what's going to corrupt him in, in, in the end. Um, but either way, like the fact that it is a, a choice, it's an unconscious or, or conscious choice to grow or run from these experiences and which one which you do from which experiences, I guess, like if he had grown from these experiences, maybe he would realize, oh, yes, it is my responsibility now to like help shepherd this thing forward to not just leave this uh, blind woman who seems to be helpless in a town that always overrun by bandits, not really like the, the right choice to make there. Uh, but, but my, I will sow my wild oats kind of thing and keep going uh, and justify it as I would only bring her, you know, ruin and, and, and destruction. Um, and like, it's, it's then right. like, it, it, he's, he, maybe he doesn't realize that he's choosing that, but he's choosing to not grow from that. He's choosing to like, maybe from the next experience, I will grow, but, functionally right. what, he's what not, the movie is yeah he's not not choosing desire he's just choosing a different desire exactly and so yeah. i think that's i think that's the interesting part is like if you marry that against the fact that like i didn't even think about it until you said there is a sequel like he, he like as a direct choice of him not growing from this he will 
probably do that. I don't know. I haven't seen the sequel, but probably do a very similar thing in the in the near future. And I, then maybe hey after man, that. I haven't seen the movie. Uh, like spoiler alert, I'd be willing to bet money he kills some people in that movie. <laughs> he probably <laughs> with kills his some sword people. <laughs> and, and maybe his shears. <laughs> and I'll bet he doesn't choose to settle down uh, either. You know, like it, it's it's just a fun question of like the uh, again, this is six years after probably the most famous uh, Jidegeki like bodyguard type movie, Ojimbo. Um, to to like six years after that, I wonder if somebody uh, on on staff gosha or whoever else looks at it and says like this is sort of like a repeating uh like yes it's cinematically interesting yes it, it's commercially appealing but these characters just keep doing the same thing over and over and we get to watch them doing it and i wonder if there's any sort of meta commentary there that's saying he's made a choice at the end of this movie to ride into the sunset and that will necessarily perpetuating lead him to, the cycle he right. will keep riding into the sunset you know i'm, I'm sure that it, this is an idea that's been scratched at thousands of times in westerns and in these types of uh, samurai movies but i just like that focusing on that at, from this movie's angle where we've already discussed um sort of like the the intent of like the sort of corrupting power of desire and how he's writing this line and how he doesn't realize that he is feeding like you said that just another kind of desire and it's going to leave more bodies in his wake kind of thing, you know, like that he doesn't right. trust himself necessarily to be mature or grown enough to care for a thing and stop and not be a wandering Ronin or to like be a wandering Ronin uh, and, and like have a, a moral center rather than just keep flitting and flying as a good guy. Exactly. You know, it's, it's just an interesting uh, sort of like play. I think this movie gets at that. I don't see another. And like that we've it, seen. it creates a really, a more subversive, um, sort of like materialist analysis of what that corruption is that maybe suggests that the, that the corruption itself that comes with having desires, that comes with wanting things, that comes with wanting to make a stand for something is not only unavoidable, but maybe not actually like as evil as somebody like Kiba would see it as, right? It's like, hey, it turns out that like wanting to defend the things that you that you love is like just part of what it means to be a person and what it means to be mm -hmm. an adult and maybe like avoiding those things, avoiding sort of like, like settling down, right? Like he was like a bad boyfriend, right? He's afraid of commitment. It's like, maybe that's like not actually like heroic the way that all of these movies seem to think of it as right. Like the departure right. of the cowboy or the samurai is always so triumphant and always so exciting for the viewer the way it is here. But like, I do really like this idea, this, this underpinning that it's sort of like, Hey, like what happens if like the guy who's doing the departing is Peter Pan. And the only reason he's <laughs> doing the departing is because he wants to stay in Neverland. Right. And like, what does that mean for Wendy? And what does it mean for, you know, all of the people that, that are left in his wake. And you can sort of extrapolate that outward to sort of like, Hey, what does it mean when like the privileged want to continue to maintain ideas of themselves uh, and exploit their privilege in order to continue to do so. Right. right. There's, there's and a really interesting theme happening there. And justify it as protecting those who can't be, you know, like it, it we're really expanding or their own ideas. purity. Right. Exactly. Right. Beyond the scope of the text of the movie here, but I, I really like where we've ended up. Um, on that note, I would like to open up the junk drawer, if we can, uh, to any final thoughts. Um, we have to do that with a quick sound effect. Thank you so much to both Cody and former guest Blake Hester for providing the uh, audio for those. Um, so the, uh, I will give my quick junk drawer thoughts. I already said, bro, he eats the fuck out of that rice, but it's like a minute of him and the credits just mashing it's his like face full of rice. It's like real Dragon Ball Z energy. He's and eating that like Goku. <laughs> he almost throws it up. He like starts burping and it com starts coming out. It's just the grossest thing, but it's like, man, you know what? Rice does make you want to do that sometimes. I just got also a motherfucker probably hadn't eaten for like a week. <laughs> <laughs> he is he is indeed a wandering runner. He has no consistent source 
source of income or food. Uh, I do love that. Like from that scene, we start to get we, like that is the first scene where we get the actually and he starts to like roll his eyes i don't have money uh but i just ate 17 bowls of your rice uh what do we do here i i really love that um uh is how uh natsuyagi the main character kiba has teeth the size of fucking piano keys and when he's talking you can't really tell but when he does like the peeling back his teeth and like showing like his literal wolf teeth i guess just they lean into it so hard that he has these gigantic like when when he's being a kind of a rapscallion asshole, they look very punchable. But when not, he just looks like like really angry. I think it's a really good choice to focus on that stuff. Um, and shout out to uh, Sanai for just uh, kicking his sandals at Kiba before they start fighting that first time when he when both of them end up injured. It's like their first uh, showdown. Um, and he just like kick kick kicks. His, I've never seen in a samurai movie or anything else. He like literally just kicks his shoes off at the other guy. Uh, it seems like a, a an intimidation tactic that maybe is a little bit less intimidating than it could have been because those sandals did not look very hefty. Um, but those are my. There are some thoughts. real Rashomon fights happening in this. In that, like the fighting sometimes looks a little ridiculous more than yeah. it looks badass. Yeah, yeah, which is funny in a movie where they keep focusing on the slow bow and the cool. That some of them are just like that's just a, like an awkward scuffle. <laughs> Awkward scuff. Uh, that's not how I remember them. Get a, a little Rashomon humor. Mm, uh, I, I do. I do have a sound effect just for that one. No, that's for a different thing. Uh, the one, uh, I guess, lingering thought that I had that didn't really fit in anywhere else. Uh, it did strike me near the end how cool. Uh, just the, there is an innate possibility that uh, somewhere in the multiverse, there's this movie, but from Sanai's perspective, that could be kind of fun. Just like both of those movies could exist together or so. I don't know. Like, I don't know if that would be a necessarily better movie. It's a movie I would want to see. I'd be curious. I think there's less to, I guess there's less to reveal unless you want to make it like a, like a true unreliable narrator kind of movie. Maybe there's something there, but anyway, I'm just, uh, I'm just backseat uh, directing here. It's just like, hey, you should have directed it from the other guy's perspective. How about that, Gosha? <laughs> um, it's not called no. Samurai Guy. It's called <laughs> Samurai Wolf, baby. Yeah, it's a it, <laughs> welcome to Samurai Guy. I need to do my taxes. I'm Samurai Guy. That's, I should never I have become a legally condoned freelancer. This W two just makes my head hurt. <laughs> Yeah, she's like uh, he cuts through his tax forms with a sword because he's a, <laughs> he's like a less yeah uh, you know maybe there's something here the more dressed up world weary uh, samurai who's got to go back out into we the world we have half for, of a screenplay for samurai guy already listen samurai guy versus samurai wolf um, whoever wins we lose now we win no matter what take it away Harry oh I mean that that movie would absolutely work like you would what you would do is you would start it earlier it would be origins samurai guy origins where like you would start out with with Sinai and Chise when they were in love and like show that Sinai was like this great naive sad sad boy sort of like uh like lover boy and then he gets his ass handed to him and then like it would be this this unbelievable tragic irony right where you like uh Kiba Kiba would show up in like the second act, and it would be like he's exactly like Sanai from the first act, and now like Sanai's uh, lover loves him, and her dad is gone, and it's like, well, where was this when I was a guy? You know, it's like it would be tragic. It would be Shakespearean. Um, They need a they need a a middle not act, but just like maybe a five minute montage that's similar to when Squidward moved into Tentacle Acres, and it's just him (laughs) experiencing a life of monotony, uh, and then he then he meets the samurai wolf and like. My opportunity to take this back. It's canned bread. 
<laughs> exactly. Well, and it, it would be like it would be Sinai like working his way up from like being like the the like the lowliest cell sword, like getting his ass kicked all the time to becoming a great sort of like mercenary warlord. Um, my, uh, my one junk drawer thought, I guess, is that I, I really love how brutal all the kills are in this movie. I also really love that. Um, like Kiba always wins fights by like, like distracting or staggering somebody like he'll, he'll like run behind a pillar and then sort of like poke them out from behind the pillar or something. Real Um, shitty. It's really shitty. It's very like roguelike. Uh, I I really dig that about it. Um, and uh, I also think legitimately, sort of in keeping with the themes of what we've been talking about, like the way that kills in this movie all of a sudden become the heaviest shit on earth is like in kind of stark contrast to like the rest of the movie, which is like very dramatic and very like um, heavy. I would say, but like definitely in genre definitely be definitely sort of like the music goes on until it doesn't right and that when it doesn't it's like somebody dying terribly and like the whole movie comes to a stop to show like the devastating consequences of violence and like we get to watch Sinai. like i felt bad for sanai at the end even though he was the main character getting killed not unlike the end of like sanjuro just because it was like jesus like he dies badly like he gets cut and like we just watch his body sort of like the life drain out of his eyes in slow-mo as his like body opens up right as sort of content warning i guess but um and and there are a lot of kills like that in this movie and they're always sort of punctuated by this like signature slow-mo music cuts out we just see we don't even see the like the um the blow we just see the consequences of the blow the aftermath and like the body falls to the ground or whatever and um i i think that that's kind of an interesting contrast that that brings kiba's sort of childlike ideas back to earth and sort of shows the contradiction between the two where it's like well yeah you're playing at like being this sort of like noble uh happy-go-lucky carefree badass but like when you cut people apart with your sword they die like everybody else (laughs) and it's terrible and like maybe that's something to consider as well lessons learned from movies uh is that when i cut people with my sword they die like everybody else uh thank you so much for your junk drawer thoughts i'm going to close that puppy uppy i'm going to open a junk drawer of a different kind with good grief give me a gift good grief uh, where I ask the boys what they would like to see go out with the episode on Twitter. Uh, this would be a, a graphics interchange format image uh, posted alongside the links to the episode. Um, I don't actually know if I'm going to be able to find a version of this that I can download and make gifts out of, but let's just reminisce for a moment uh, in fairy tale land where I do get to make gifts. What shots you would like to see uh, this movie uh, go out uh, on Twitter with? Um, uh, Harry, give me yours first. Yeah, I've only got two. Um, one's like, I think it's literally the opening shot of the movie where he's uh, like holding his uh, the guard on his katana and holding it up in the air and charging at the camera with his big wolf teeth and going like, ah, and then it says samurai wolf. That's really sick. Um, and then the second one is, uh, I think this is around 42 minutes. I, I know that these timestamps might not be super helpful this time around, but um this is the one time I've got them, of course. Uh, there's this part where Sinai is with uh, the the brothel um, um, proprietor, and they're they're sort of conspiring about betraying the Shogun. And the Shogun's men are are not the Shogun, the Shogun's messenger. Um, they're spying on him, and uh, Sinai sticks his katana through the wall. 
and it like nearly stabs one of the spies and the spies just makes like a so oh shit good. face uh and uh yeah that was uh i think that would be a really because like we watched this we watch um sinai sort of like listening and then we cut to the outside where the dude is and then we see the sword happen and it goes through and the guy makes the oh shit face and it's it's really good and really comedic and sort of classic great choices uh cody that might be one of yours as well uh it was an honorable mention for me i did make note of the time because i i thought that was another yeah like a very striking image i think Probably the objectively correct choice might be some of the the slow-mo battle sequences, but when those were happening, I was basking in the afterglow of them and the glow of them as they were happening. But then after after they took place, it's an afterglow and I was just sitting there stunned to um, my brain had paused and I did not think to take timestamps for them. Um, But they're really great images. I do have a couple different ones. Uh, about two minutes, 43 seconds. It's, uh, this is post rice eating and he had already let, uh, let that, that, um, that fine woman know that, uh, he was not able to pay in monies, but he could pay in workies. And so it's him on a roof peeking through like a hole, like a square hole in the roof. Um, and I was hoping that that would set sort of a, an off kilter tone for the movie. And I was kind of right. Um, but I, I liked, <laughs> like that shot a, a lot. Like a big shitty grin. Yes, too. he does. <laughs> you better so believe it. You better believe it. A big wolfy grin. Uh, and then at 10 minutes, 35 seconds, thereabouts, um, his, uh, keep his converse. He's having a conversation with Shisei and it's like, it's, it's pretty static in that. I don't think the camera is moving, but it's Shisei's face reflected in his sword. And like, I, of all the, like a lot of cool images. I don't know. I can't recall. I don't think they did anything like that throughout the rest of the movie, but in a vacuum, I just thought that was a super cool in, shot. In one other point, he shaves. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, oh, right, at, right, 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 right. In the reflection of his sword, but you're right. That one shot with, with her in his like sword reflection was so good. Right. Almost for no reason. I mean, I mean, I'm glad they did it. It's just like, they were just having kind of a, like a, a, an innocuous enough conversation. I mean, relative, they, they have a lot of important conversations during that movie. It's, it's Samurai Wolf, 1966. What do you expect? Um, but pretty, pretty cool looking image. What, uh, what other cool images did you land upon, Mr. Jason? Well, you got two of them. Um, honestly, those were two of my, two of my picks because right after that one where you see her face reflected in his blade, it's maybe one or two shots later. It's sort of a shot reverse shot of, I believe, her in the background sword in the foreground and his face reflected in the in the sword and it's I, I thought about cutting those together maybe like removing some of the interstitial work and just having cut to cut because man that looks so fucking cool and it's so like perfectly angled and perfectly shot no like blinding reflection of light or anything it's just so clean and yeah they don't really bring that specific type of work out later um there are a couple of dutch tilts uh, later on in the movie i must uh, i must pull those out every time i notice the changles the, the changles do appear in this movie uh, as they're walking what they think is the 30 pieces 30,000 pieces of gold uh, across the highway and you keep seeing the highway markers of like how far they have to go and it's shrinking and each signpost they either like start on a dutch angle and zoom in to like a straight 90 degree or they go start at the straight 90 degree and zoom out and do sort of a dutch tilt and if it like it's very clearly not like steady cammed or whatever it's just like some person tilting the camera back to uh, 90 degree it really 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 works uh it, it looks cool and it's like again um sort of like to accept to exemplify like the sort of it's an arduous journey it's very tense they think they're going to get uh, attacked by bandits at any moment and they end up 
getting attacked by bandits at a key moment. But um, they fought for rocks they thought were gold. No, it's like I, I almost heard Harrison Ford say that line, <laughs> even though it was Kiva saying it in Japanese. I was like, they fought for rocks they thought were gold. They belong in a museum. Perfect, he says uh, for no reason. Perfect wagging finger, Harry, for Harrison Ford. Hey, uh, spoilers, but check out the Trilon's upcoming schedule for some. That Harrison must have been what movies. I was thinking of. It must. He does a lot of finger pointing yeah, in that. A lot movie. of finger pointing. It's going to be really good. It's so fucking good. Uh, but there were a couple others. Um, the face reflecting Kiva's blade is awesome. I think there's one shot where it's the magic, the Shogun's messenger, and one of the local clan leaders, I believe. And again, the plot kind of got lost a little bit in my mind. But they're sort of conspiring to take the gold and take the take the post uh office and uh the, and like the shot the scene starts on a shot of like again a dutch tilted um uh candle sort of like burning in the foreground and just people reveling in the background kind of like a bacchanalia uh, and you just hear the sounds of revelry and fun and stuff it's just a really like again as a little bit out of place shot in the movie but it sort of sets up like oh it's kind of a cd goings on people are maybe a little bit too into their cuffs for this hell yeah so i i love how in like every yakuza and samurai movie if you want to show that that the dudes are bad guys you just have them like sitting in in like groups of men four or five strong in like on like little mats in, in a big room <laughs> it's and they're just like laughing and having fun and drinking yeah. and it's just like that that looks like all the yakuza movies make it, being a yakuza look like a fucking blast I know. it's just like you're just in a big room with all your boys drinking and partying all Even, the time. Like the, the focus of this scene is the two guys in the foreground who are just like pouring sake back and forth and enjoying it and sort of conspiring. Ha ha, mwahaha, like mustache twirling. But like a key element of all these scenes is that there is a group of people who is not the focus of the scene. Just just vibing, just having a great time. Just it's like partying. what if your whole job was just to get sick tattoos and sit in your <laughs> boss's house all day with all of your friends? <laughs> That's being a Yakuza. Only the cool guys get guns. Everybody else you got to do with your fists, baby. Um, but there's uh, one <clears throat> there's one final uh, shot that I wanted to focus on, and it is where um, Chise, I forget exactly. I think it's like the first time uh, maybe he she meets Kiba, but she's like blindly reaching out into the like outside the frame of the shot and the shot follows her hand before Kiba's face appears. And he like puts his face into her hand to like sort of like meet her uh, blind grasp. It goes on maybe a little bit too far for a gif if I can even make these, but I really liked that shot because like for a moment, just a blessed moment, all you see is her hand just un like just wavering, uncomfortable from I think it's from like left. Yeah, Cody's trying to redo it. Uh, in the I should have had my camera going for that. Um, I'm glad you didn't. Please continue. I'm not glad I didn't. But just for a moment, you see nothing but her hand against like the uh, sort of shoddy background of the post office. Uh, I really liked that too. Before he comes in and greets it with his uh, scruffy. Uh, I also like that he greets it with his face like a dog yeah, right exactly. it's like he literally goes in for pets <laughs> he doesn't like reach out and grab her hand because like that's not the defining feature it's the fact that he's scruffy and that he smells good is that how she recognizes him i really like that i really like that what that said about the scene and it just looks really good too um because it's very tenuous it's very like will something come out and grab it will whatever uh so really great shots uh, and great choices everybody we've just crossed about the hour mark so i don't have an outro sound for good grief give me a gift but pretend it happened uh and i will help excuse me i will enlist harry's help introducing our final segment of the show Thank you, Jason. The final segment is the segment we like to call <gasps> Cody's Noties. Wow. Thank you, gentlemen. That introduction sure was blinding. Uh, this week, we'll be hitting on some of the the spicy pups of cinema with a little something I like to call Awoo Tri-Wolves of Loveden. 
that's what pause for laughter and applause uh, i'm going to read off uh, once again that's awu tri wolves of love done i'm going to read off some movie uh movie wolf rather related trivia items i will present each prompt one at a time uh i debuted a a, a spinner app last week uh, it doesn't really work with two people as we as we found um and i'm not gonna be here spoil spoilers again for the next three episodes so it'll be a little a little while before we dust that baby off again but we're just gonna go in the order of harry then jason for our purposes today you get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct answer the person with the most points at the end will lose uh, now they're gonna win as always trivia mafia rules apply here uh use your noodles not your googles you know the drill uh i can trust the gentleman here to know the drill um and that's all i will say about that with that let's go ahead and jump in uh first and foremost we're going to shout out uh moro the wolf goddess from princess mononoke shout outs all around uh how Fuck tall yeah. is hayo miyazaki harry oh man miyazaki a, a towering presence in animation and art i'm gonna go with five a uh six i think he maybe was five eight at one point in his life but he's been shrinking then he got the surgery yeah no that's that's fair how old is goro all right not how tall is goro i should say did you look that up he will always be looking up at his father i I was gonna say because miyazaki's exactly one inch higher than however tall (laughs) goro is I I did not look that up, um, or maybe I did, and I'm just trying to mislead you. That's that's up to you, listener. Um, until then, Jason, how tall do you think Hayao Miyazaki is? I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to say that he is, in fact, 5'8 at present. 5'8 at present. Thank you for your guesses. Going off a few sources on the internet, Miyazaki is allegedly 5'5". Five five. So that's where that Good is Good lord. Good it's Lord, a, give a me a gourd. It's a good thing he became the greatest animator in history because he probably wouldn't be that good at hooping. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he should not. Uh, I don't know. It is local YMCA. He might be the king of hooping. Uh, who, who's to say? Not me. Um, but Harry was closest with that uh, with his guess, so he gets a point. Um, still in the early goings. Therefore, it is very much anybody's game as of yet. Next, we're going to examine Dances with Wolves for number two, which uh, I admittedly have not seen, but my extensive research seems to indicate, let me check my notes, yep, that uh, that there's some wolf stuff that takes place in that movie. So that's a little fun fact about Dances with Wolves. Uh, the movie also seems to take place largely in South Dakota. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, probably not. Uh, where uh, While there reportedly isn't a native gray wolf population in South Dakota, there are instances evidently of like transient gray wolf um, packs, uh, like small packs that come through and establish themselves as like near apex level predators. Um, so that's some very vague context. My, my question for y'all though, what's the peak weight for an adult gray wolf? Harry? Oh man, uh... I'm going to go with 140 pounds. Harry's locking in it, uh, locking it in at 140 lbs. Thank you for your guess. Uh, and Jason, how about you? I just learned that even the biggest sun bears are only about 140 pounds. So I think the biggest gray wolf must be smaller than that. If it's a that's bear. a that's a good point, Jason. I, I, I'm I'm just you know walking you through my thought process. I'm going to say one one thirty. 130 all right smidge lower thank you for your guess the alleged peak weight for an adult gray wolf is around 150 pounds uh yeah harry with the the great guess jason i like that logic a lot it is 
I don't I don't know how that changes. Nature think, finds a way, I guess. I think I, the yeah. thing is that that like sun bears look a lot like more portly than than wolves, but I think sun bears mm-hmm. are actually quite a bit smaller than wolves. Yeah, I think the biggest yeah. wolf is a pretty long motherfucker like yeah, compared that, to I, dogs. I think that's where I was like I was thinking yeah. bears are bigger than wolves, but I think sun bears are known to be like pretty small on the on the bear uh scale you know so i just the bear I let scale, it get the better yeah. yeah bear scale uh fun fact about dances with wolves i haven't seen that movie either but it was apparently playing in the hospital room uh where i was born <laughs> so wow. wow i was uh i'm a dances with wolves baby <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> Wait, what? like during during i don't think actually during that's how i like to think of it in the I, twinkling I, eyes, uh, eyes of the newborn Babe Mac and yeah, I, Kevin Costner's reflection right. off of his beady It really is. It set the pace for the rest of my life. No, I think I think the story my mom has told is that she was watching it in the hospital on the day she eventually went into labor. Oh, which I, right. means I don't think I'd actually intersected with my birth, unfortunately. <laughs> that's oh boy, that it's uh, quite quite a story, quite a story, Mark. Um, legitimately, that's uh, if you. Listen, you've got any stories about movies that were playing in the hospital rooms uh, when y'all were born, uh, write to us at uh, – we have an email address, right? I don't know what it is offhand. You can Trial add us on Twitter. Trialofpodcast at gmail.com. It's not like we say it every episode or something. Uh, for number three, uh, next we'll shout out Lone Wolf and Cub. Uh, I think top to bottom, one of my personal favorite film series. Without counting Shogun Assassin, hey, previous episode, uh, there are six installments. In that particular film series, my question for you is cumulatively, I think I said that, I'm not going to overthink it. How many minutes comprise the Lone Wolf and Cub films in total across all six films? How many minutes uh, make up those movies, Harry? Time for some math. Uh, People like math on podcasts, right? 600 minutes, I'm going to say. Harry is going to say 600 minutes. Oh, man, I think that's, sh- no, I'm not going to give any hints. That's it's etched in concrete, unfortunately. Uh, but 600 got you down. Jason, what uh, what you thinking? I'm going to say um, 530 minutes. 530 minutes is Jason's guess. Wait, what's, my math might be completely garbage on that. We'll see. I guess we will. We'll find out uh, in a few seconds. Going by Letterbox Metrics, the Lone Wolf and Cub series runs for a total across six films uh, for a total of 506 minutes. Whoa! All, all of those movies are like 89 minutes or, or shorter. See, They're I, beautiful. That was my average 100 minutes, which like I thought was pretty conservative, given mm. that like you could. I wasn't Sam Jurel like two hours something. Yeah, some uh, bullshit. So, but. Wow! Shout outs to Lone Wolf and Cub. Yeah, they're all bangers. They're 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 so good. Seek them out, and yeah, again, they are like, yeah, they're they're nice and short. You're in and out less than ninety minutes. Really great. Uh, like as we were getting into COVID times, and then shortly after the start of COVID time, COVID times was when I I watched those, and I the only thing I regret is not rewatching them again sooner. So I will. Uh, bask in my regrets off mic uh, meanwhile we've got a game going on folks our fourth out of five wolves will be another figurative one the wolf of wall street maybe you've heard of him uh, going by letterboxd once again how many actors are credited for the wolf of wall street harry how many credited actors on letterboxd are there listed for the wolf of wall street <laughs> a shitload of those motherfuckers it's like every single dude that scorsese's worked with right uh let's see I'm going to go with uh, 30. 
30 actors on Letterboxd. All right, locking it in. Jason, how many credited, how many actors are listed out on Letterboxd for this movie? I'm going to say 78 actors. 78 actors. Just consi- t- t- considering t- t- all the factors. We say yeah, actors, but gender non specific performers. Right. Correct. Okay. Yep. Thank you. Yep. I, the number yep. holds. Yep, exactly. Uh, Letterboxd, the the website, the app, the everything in between. Letterboxd notes entries for 141 different credited actors. Whoa. 141. Holy shit. Did they credit like every individual who was in the Wall Street like office? Yeah, I'm credited in Wolf of Wall Street. I just found <laughs> out. I went through and hand counted them and it's like, shit, there I am. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, 141. A lot that's, of motherfuckers in that movie. That's wild. It is. It is. Uh, you know what else is wild? Even more wilder, in fact, is that uh, we're all tied up. Still very much anybody's game. And uh, getting into the fifth and final question, it is just a straight up. It's a, it's a one-point question. There's no staggering scales. There's no, there's no ranking bullshit where you get anywhere from zero to four points. Nothing like that. We've heard your user feedback. This is mono e mono. Our inbox drama is full of this shit. Stop sending Lobo us the messages. E yeah. Lobo. The, the the very Lobos. For this fifth and final question, we're going to shout out 2004's The Day After Tomorrow, which features some CGI wolves, baby. Here we go. <laughs> uh, very straightforward question. What was The Day After Tomorrow's intake at the global box office in 2004? Harry, who just rolled the fuck out of his eyes. <laughs> what is your guess? I've answered so many box office questions that by now you would think I would be okay at them and you would be so wrong <laughs> i like i have no fucking idea how to answer these questions ever uh fuck uh five million dollars mm, ten million dollars ten million dollars at the global box office in 2004 30 million dollars <laughs> <laughs> what is your final answer 30 million dollars $30 million. And Jason, what do you think? I, I empathize with Harry because if anything, these get harder each time because I remember how bad I am at them and everyone well, feels like surprised. So it's not like a trend I can follow. Tony you know? could be like $4.2 million or it could be like $770 million. <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Equally likely. I'm going to guess formally $215 million at the Worldwide Box Office. $215 million. Do, oh, I was going to Dolores or Dolores. I think Dolores is the currency, whereas mm. Dolores is if I were to say like a woman's name. Uh, like, uh, no, uh, the name or uh, Jason is laughing at his own joke. Uh, it, it, like pains. Um, I think the Spanish word for for pain is dolor. Like, so like pain, like Dolores. Yeah, like ouchie. Dolores, Dolores. In my day, aches and pains, brother. Aches and pains. Hubba hubba awuga. Well, uh, just to get ahead of it, uh, I'll say thank you. This has been Aou Tri Wolves of Loveden. The day after tomorrow took in a grand global cumulative total of around $552.6 million. Aou, indeed. Holy shit, that was a very successful film. Yeah, very much so. Uh, Sorry for doubting it, Cody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you motherfuckers. Day After Tomorrow Hive is here. It ain't going (laughs) anywhere. Uh, No, we'll 
probably meander. We'll wander the earth as as good Ronan do. Um, but Jason was closest with his guess with a score of three to two. He edged out Harry, so the pop off platform is Jason's. Oh, that's all I got to say, fellas. Thank you oh, so my. much for another episode of Cody's Noties and ending our episodes of Try Love with a wonderful, uh, fun game to play. Um, I, I look forward maybe someday to or is the um the after tomorrow hive accepting new recruits because i remember watching that movie and liking it uh, like a lot when i was a kid mm-hmm. have not watched it since i was probably 13 14 years old is it yeah uh, yeah it's it's as as fleeting and unpredictable as the weather the uh the en- entrance into the oh the the t-dot hive uh <laughs> is so yeah just, yeah just come on over brother uh, I never, I, I've never, never seen that particular film. I think um, I know our next boys. Watch it's been then. on my watch list for a long time. I've always said I'll watch it the day after tomorrow. <gasps> it it is like completely, completely unrelated. That here. was my mouth and not the the audio cue that Jason has. <laughs> should we should we question someday? Was it just like the Hollywood of the day that was pursuing new IP rather than just constant serialization? But like, did that movie ever receive a formal sequel? And if so, should Mm-mm. if not, should it have? I don't think it should have. No, probably not. Okay. Uh, find, that, that's a, a lot of money for wild, 2004, though, right? I mean, like, like, that's a crazy successful movie. But you, you mm-hmm. would have to assume that it'd be like both Quaid and Gyllenhaal would have to be back on board. You'd make some shit going forward. Like, I guess I, I think just, maybe it was it, just a different world. I think um, because I don't know how much it played into it, but if I recall correctly, that movie is vaguely somewhat based off of a book that is like mm. kind of about the climate crisis the obvious like huge narrative liberties it's not about some kid being stuck in a library in new york i don't think whose dad dennis quaid has to go rescue him and <laughs> and his and his buddies but yeah like kind of a fun ip new ip summer with day after tomorrow uh in it released in june july's big release at least in my household was irobot which was also Ooh. based off of a book yeah right yeah the day after tomorrow was based off of the coming global superstorm yep. by Art Bell and uh, Whitley Schreiber. I remember mm. buying that book because I really enjoyed the movie, and that book was never read by me, so I cannot speak <laughs> to it <laughs> in who particular. Who among us, brother? <laughs> Whom Among yeah. Us, indeed. Whom Among Us finds us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast, finds the Triline at Triline Cinema and at Triline.org, finds me, little old Jason Daphnis, at Nintendoofus. No, he's big old Jason Daphnis. I've been Cody Narvis, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. And I'm Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at PunishTake. I'm waiting for the man who destroyed my life. I'm sure he will come. I'll wait for him as long as necessary. It's Aaron Grossman. <laughs>